We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What up, listener? We wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this Blue Wire podcast. Be sure to show your support to this pod by subscribing and dropping a five-star review on iTunes, a follow on Spotify, or the appropriate dap for any other platform you might be listening on. And if you're enjoying this show, chances are you'll like one of our 75 other sports podcasts. Find more shows you'll love at bluewirepods.com. Thanks again for listening, and now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. I'm joined by my co-host Nick Bellato. Today's podcast will obviously be focused around the Senior Bowl, an event Nick was live in Mobile, Alabama for grinding film of the practices, talking to people up there and getting a feel for this senior class, which will again be very important in the New York Giants evaluation. As we know, this current giant regime values senior prospects. Um, and I was live in northern New Jersey consuming every little piece of content around the event. I love the Senior Bowl. I love draft season. This is what I live for. You know, the in-season stuff's fun too, but I'm a big fan of the draft. All right, Nick, before we jump into the Senior Bowl, I want to hear from you. Can you sum up what Eli Manning's career meant to you? It was, I mean, it's incredibly nostalgic for me to think about Eli because when the Giants drafted him, I was I was a kid at the time. So I grew up just idolizing this football player and kind of how he conducted himself. So the fact that he brought two championships to my beloved team, the team I grew up adoring, it just it really means the world to me. Everything about Eli Manning, what he represents, how he conducted himself in this city and kind of seeing him off. I mean, honestly, we can both agree that it probably should have happened sooner. But it's still, I feel like, getting that Dolphins win, having him run off the field uh, one last time through the tunnel, it's still uh, like a good send-off in a positive way, and it's not as tarnished as I felt like it could have been. And I know there were bumps along the, <laughs> along the way in the last couple seasons, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss Eli, just uh, his, you know, just the way he 
uh, handles himself and everything like that. But I think the Giants are in good hands with Daniel Jones. He seems like he has that similar kind of work ethic. But man, the rhetoric around Eli Manning and the Hall of Fame talk has been absolutely ridiculous, dude. <laughs> I come back from Mobile and that's like what everybody is talking about. Yeah, I mean, that part of it doesn't surprise me. And I'll start there, I guess, because that's where you ended, Nick. And, you know, it's it's a stats-driven – it's a stats-driven, I guess – uh, I don't know, stats-driven narrative or stats-driven media or stats-driven fan base now. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the narrative surrounding Eli Manning, a lot of it is, I believe, groupthink. I, I believe a lot of people on Twitter jump onto one and latch on, one opinion and latch onto it. I mean, the stats aren't there for a Hall of Fame quarterback. I get it. But, you know, you have to understand the context. According to Pro Football Focus, Eli Manning has had one single offensive line that graded in the top 20 from 2011 to 2018. That's four straight seasons of the 20th or worse offensive line, except for one year. And that was 2012. The Giants in rushing yards per game and rushing yards per attempt were also never above 16th or in 2012, they were seventh best in 2015. They were 16th best and every single year from 2011, 2018, besides those, they were 24th or worse. They had no rushing offense. They had no offensive line and their defense. Well, Eli Manning has the third most victories. This is a stat that I saw the other day. He was with uh, Peyton Manning and one other quarterback, I believe I'm forgetting now. It might've been Marino. One of those type of guys where third most victories for a quarterback who uh, played with a defense that was 16th or worse for that uh, at the start of that game. So hasn't really had a defense, hasn't ever had an offensive line really, except for 2007 and 2008, um, and then that outlier year in 2012 where they played better. Uh, but this is the kind of quarterback he was. He overcame all that. He played his best football in the biggest moments, and that's kind of the crux of Eli Manning, in my opinion. Growing up for me, Eli Manning is and will always be my favorite football player ever. There will be no one who surpasses him for me. And I was there for a lot of the great Eli moments, the comeback drivers, Denver in 05, when you kind of knew, wow, this guy just led an 83 yard, two minute drill. Uh, hasn't really played like this all year, all game, but now he's doing it. He's rolling out on third and four, reversing course of field and hitting a receiver on the sideline. He's back, back, backing up and hitting tumor for the game winning touchdown. And then it was games like that that just piled up throughout his career. I was there in that stadium for the game where he hit Cruz uh, on an 80 yarder to open up overtime, just a perfect ball. He dropped in on a slot vertical. And there's just so many memories like that. I actually did an article on CBS Sports, if anyone's interested and hasn't seen it, ranking Eli's 10 best games ever. And it's not just the 10 best games Eli's appeared in, Nick, and for anyone who's interested, it's, in my opinion, the 10 best individual performances of his Giants career. And I think he summed it up best at the end. You know, they say once a Giant, always Giant, but for him, it was only a Giant. And that is true. 16 awesome years, never missed a game due to injury, despite playing through multiple lower body injuries that anyone else would have would have uh, missed game for. In 2009, when he got injured versus the Chiefs, that was a four to six week injury that cost him zero games. Four to six week injury for every other quarterback that cost him zero games. So that should be factored in, I believe, to his Hall of Fame conversation. There will be more of that to come, Nick. But yeah. for now, let's pivot here because this podcast is about the Senior Bowl. This podcast is about players who can help the Giants in the future, players who they can build around Daniel Jones. And I want to start on the offensive side of the ball, Nick, because 
Um, but before, actually, let's back it up. Before we do that, I want to hear about your experience at the Senior Bowl because I think it's cool to give the fans of our podcast an inside look into, you know, what it's like for somebody like you to go down there. Give us the day-to-day and just overall what you took away from being in Mobile for the Senior Bowl. I mean, it's an excellent experience. This is my fourth year going down, but fifth time going to Mobile, Alabama, because I was a part of Phil Savage's scout school a couple years back. And I mean, the Senior Bowl itself is a very unique kind of event for these players. They're all hand-selected by Jim Nagy and his staff, and they're kind of thrown into a hodgepodge environment uh, with the coaching staff of the NFL that gets to coach these people. This year, the North had uh, were the Lions and the Bengals. Uh, coach the South team, but just for like the media members, basically you show up Tuesday, weigh-ins are at 7 a.m. And then the media day is at like 10, I want to say. And you kind of congregate with all your friends on Twitter that you really only know from their little Twitter picture. And then you kind of get to go see them and you see them in person and it's really cool. And then you usually just go out and party at night. And the practices are usually from like 12 o'clock noon or 1230 to about 430. And then after that, you kind of grind the tape. The film room is open. You go down to the film room, grind the tape, see all the personalities, see all the scouts in there, see general managers in there. And then at nighttime, you usually just go out to the bars and party. And that's really what it is. And you'll see coaches drunk. You'll see NFL media members. I've seen so many big members of the NFL media that we all know just piss drunk, acting like just absolutely ridiculous. And it's funny because you see them on television like two days later, like totally fine. It's a really unique experience that if you are a media member or even if you're just like a fan, you can go and attend these things. You can attend the practices as a fan. You probably can't get into the hotels or any of the film room and stuff like that if you're not if you don't have credentials. But it's just very, very fun. And the Senior Bowl has been huge for players like Hassan Reddick. He was a third, fourth round prospect, jumped all the way into the top 15 back in 2017. And even our team with the Giants, Gettleman has mentioned how he fell in love with Daniel Jones at the Senior Bowl. And this past year, you had Justin Herbert, Jordan Love, all these guys kind of moving up boards. Javon Kinlaw had a really good week down there. So there were a lot of people making a lot of money down there. Then there are some players that don't show up and then they just slide down board. So it's a really, really unique and cool event for kind of everybody involved in the last I would say five or six years has become much more media driven, a lot more media members that do go down there. And it's just a really fun time, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the Senior Bowl, as far as just what it means, it means a lot because it is the all-star game for these senior players. But it's a way for GMs around the NFL and talent evaluators around the NFL to gauge how these players match up against better competition, against the best competition, at least from the senior class or eligible senior players. Some of these players who were in this game we're going to get to were from small schools, and we didn't have any scope of how they could match up against this type of competition. Some of these players didn't face a Javon Kinlaw in the trenches every week. Or, you know, some of these players, obviously, from a quarterback standpoint, maybe had an easier schedule or matched up against defenses that were much easier than what they were practicing against this week. So the Senior Bowl is huge. Not just Giants GMs, you've got them. A lot of the better GMs are putting a lot of stock in the Senior Bowl. I mean, you look at last year's Senior Bowl, the biggest standout player last year, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this year it seems like the biggest standout player was Javon Kinlaw, the interior pass rusher. Uh, yeah, um, Kin- Kinlaw missed the third day of practice, right. which was indoors because of an injury. But yeah, he was pro- he was just one of those guys that was winning every one on one. The only one who really did well against him was Cushionberry, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah, we're gonna dive into all the all the actual players from the week. Um, but I think probably Kinlaw has the edge for the 
single best week, at least from what I've seen. I mean, there's guys, Pride out of out of Notre Dame, the corner, obviously shot up the boards, and Denzel Mims. Those guys obviously had awesome weeks, uh, and Mims a receiver, and we're going to touch on both of them. But as far as coming into this bowl as a potential top 15 pick and then showing out as maybe the best player on the field, that was Kinlaw um, out of South Carolina. But the point I'm trying to make here is last year, the single best player at the Senior Bowl, at least according to most people, was Debo Samuel. And Debo Samuel came into it as maybe a fringe, you know, day two pick who, you know, whatever. Nobody thought too much of him. And now he's made it the biggest impact besides, obviously, Terry McLaurin at the wide receiver position of all the of all the rookies this season. And he's a big reason why the 49ers are in the Super Bowl. And in my opinion, if they're going to win this game against the Chiefs this Sunday, he's going to be a big reason why. And that's just the guy who everyone fell in love with at the Senior Bowl because they saw him match up against these guys. And they said, OK, look, he can do it. Um, so on that note, Nick. Let's start to dive into the players. I want to start with the the offensive side of the ball here because from my overall takeaways, Nick, it seems like the offense won this week by a considerable margin. Maybe that's just how it shook out this week, this year with more talent on that side of the ball, but that's how it felt to me. And it seems like to me, the Giants will be in line for some help on the offensive side of the ball this, this offseason and in the draft. I think that would probably come on the interior offensive line at offensive tackle. Um, and then at wide receiver where, you know, some teams are just never thrilled with what they have, always looking to upgrade. And maybe the Giants are looking to upgrade for this coming system with Jason Garrett, who in the past, like we said on the last podcast, has ran an air, a Coriel-based offense where you can really benefit from having bigger receivers on the outside. He had Miles Austin there. He had guys like that in his past. So there's a couple big wide receivers who stood out. And I want to start with the one who probably stood out as having the best week of any wide receiver. And that's two, 206-pound Denzel Mims. Uh, so Mims is a guy who I think, from what I've read, won the week as far as wide receivers go. He was quick uh, with his with separation off the line of scrimmage. Apparently, he had the best one-on-ones of any wide receiver here. What do you think of Mims uh, moving forward, and what was your takeaways from watching him this week? Yeah, Mims really surprised me because he's like all legs. He's a very long, leggy guy, so you would think that he would just be a long strider, but his ability to kind of break down and sink his hips in and out of cuts and then accelerate and hit another gear was really, really impressive. I mean, he was much faster than I expected. He was going in one-on-ones winning with subtle head fakes and just kind of driving off his inside foot to just shoot up and run a like a really impressive fade route to create separation and stack on top of cornerbacks. He was winning nine routes, curls back to the quarterbacks, curls to the sideline, any kind of inside breaking route. He was just really, really impressive and he showed good hands as well. So he was somebody that definitely kind of jumped out and made a name for himself down here. Cause again, I questioned his ability to kind of accelerate and break in and out of in and out of cuts because of just his build his fact that he is so long-legged but Denzel Mims made himself some money down there and this is a very very you you articulated it really well this is a very strong offensive class and the offense definitely showed up in all three of those practices and the receivers down in Mobile were incredibly impressive Mims being one of the more impressive ones yeah without a doubt um and Mims is interesting to me because he's somebody who as you as you guys will probably tell as we go throughout the process, I'm not really keen on the Giants using any pick before round four at wide receiver, unfortunately. I just don't think they are in position to have that luxury right now. And I don't see after this week Mims kind of lasting past, I guess, day three. I think before this week, he was kind of a guy who was on that fringe round three, round four projection. But this will kind of get him up. I'm still a little bit worried about Mims personally. I think that, you know, I liked what I saw at Baylor and obviously had a great week here, but I have, I just have a feeling that 
at the NFL level, he might have trouble. He might have a little bit more trouble against better cornerbacks. I don't know. It's just something I kind of see watching him. But listen, he's he's impressed every single person there. So if the Giants are one of those teams, I won't be surprised because, like you said, Nick, he showed more speed and explosion than than I, I think most people thought just by looking at him uh, or maybe by seeing him a little bit at Baylor. So he's definitely someone who intrigues me, someone who really intrigues me, actually even more for me. Nick, who I'm actually more intrigued by, and I was glad that you pointed him out as somebody you want to talk about, was Michael Pittman, the wide receiver who's a little bit bigger than than Mims. Pittman is six foot four, two twenty, uh, out of USC. He's a guy who was a captain of his team um, and really broke out in his 2019 season. He was okay, kind of a big play threat for most of his career there. But in 2019, he had 101 catches, 1,269 yards, 11 touchdowns. Um, and more importantly, I thought he did an awesome job. He, he finished with 14 forced missed tackles. He was really better than I thought he would be after the catch when I started to watch him a little bit. He's a vertical threat for sure, and he uses his body well and his size well to to win vertically. But he actually has a little bit more juice after the catch um, than I thought he would. What did you make? What did you take away from Pittman this week? I think Pittman's incredibly versatile. He played on special teams. You could put him in the slot, be a big slot. He could be an X receiver, which the Giants may be looking for and just down there 1v1s just looking at Michael Pittman you see just how big he is long arms very very chiseled he's a rocked up dude and his ability to separate was better than I expected as well because he is a bigger guy and he could also accelerate in and out of breaks pretty well and at the line of scrimmage he's physical he was able to beat press by firing his feet and then using that inside arm to knock DB's hands down and then get on top stack do all those things for those vertical routes up the vertical stem so what Pittman showed was very intriguing. I, um, yeah, I just overall, like those bigger receivers that were down there, Denzel Mims is a little bit different because he's not as slight. And my one issue with Mims translating to the next level is can he handle the physicality of some more physical corners? I don't really have that concern with Michael Pittman Jr. And right. Chase Claypool from Notre Dame, who's like a biscuit away from being a tight end. He's another player that just was very smooth for a guy of his size in and out of cuts. But Pittman, I mean, that's somebody that I feel like we'll be hearing his name in the beginning of day two, maybe mid-day two, just because this receiver class is so stacked and people are going to get so many good players in the fourth fifth round because there are so many good receivers in this class and hopefully the Giants can be one of those guys to land somebody like Pittman yeah I mean I mean at this point you you I feel like after this week where he was so impressive it's going to be unlikely that Pittman does fall into that that third round pick the Giants have which is kind of late three if we want him at two but you know if he's there at two and they take him they obviously feel really big about what he can be as, as for this offense, for the new offensive system, and just in general as an overall potential wide receiver one. He was one in 2019 for sure. I mean, I just read the numbers to you. He was an absolute beast throughout the year. He was tough to guard. But it'll be interesting to see if – and obviously, you know, everybody knows Michael Pittman. This is Michael Pittman Jr. Everybody remembers his father, who, or at least most people I'm sure do, who played in the NFL for a while with the Bucks with the, I believe the Cardinals and the Broncos. He has that pedigree, which I always like personally. I'm a big fan of that, Nick. I believe pedigree mm-hmm. is important. So we'll see where they go there. It was just intriguing to me that two of the biggest standout receivers this year were big bodied guys who could really maybe fit the Giants. Um, so those are two names to certainly keep an eye on. But, you know, let's talk a little bit uh, offensive line, interior offensive line, because that's really where I believe the Giants need an upgrade. Obviously, at the center position is where I believe that, you know, they were okay with Jalapio and, and Pulley, but really just ne- they don't have the play strength that I like. 
to, to win at the point of attack consistently. And the Giants will be obviously shifting over their, their blocking scheme. They're not going to be strictly inside zone like they were with Pat Shermer, at least we assume. So let's start with probably my favorite player from the week on the interior offensive line, Nick, that I want to get your thoughts on. And that's Lloyd Cushenberry. And, and again, I may be pronouncing these names wrong as we move through the podcast. That's just that's just a product of it being January 26th. That's how it's going to go in draft talk. I'm going to miss some names now, but I'll get them eventually, guys. And that's not the important part. So let's talk Cush um, from LSU. From my observation, Nick, from reading in depth about this week's practice, Cush was literally the only interior offensive lineman who was able to hold up against Javon Kinlaw. And we talked about Kinlaw earlier on the podcast, our, arguably the best player in mobile this week, the interior defensive lineman from Carolina. And he was a beast all week. And I thought Cush was the only one who I was reading was holding up at all in one-on-ones with him. Maybe the best offensive lineman overall, any position. So I think, you know, some of the positives I've read about Cush are his hand quickness and just overall lower body strength and that ability to hold up at the point of attack, which I think the Giants have lacked at times over the past two seasons. So I'm thinking this performance might have boosted him into the top overall center in this draft over Beatas and a few others. And maybe a guy who's going to straight up be in play for the Giants with that round two pick they have, that early round two pick. What did you see and what did you think from about Kush this week? See, that's what I'm hoping for is that the Giants target him if he is available with that round two pick because Cushenberry really showed up. And with Humphrey going back to school, <clears throat> excuse me, and Biotis, just his 2019 tape wasn't as good as a lot of people hoped. I mean, Cushenberry could be in prime selection for the Giants. And his ability to anchor like in these one-on-ones when people are trying to bull rush you, when these players are trying to bull rush you, it's hard to anchor and then kind of secure these guys with inside hand placement and not allow these defensive linemen to hit you and establish a half-man relationship because there's no guards to help you. It's one-on-one. And Cushenberry did this against Javon Kinlaw on several different reps where he was able to stalemate him. His ability to anchor is just so far superior than what a lot of people have, especially because he did it at such a consistent manner. And he had really quick feet, smooth feet. He had really quick hands, like you said before, low center of gravity, which really allows him to anchor really well. So Cushenberry really made himself a lot of money and did himself a lot of favors this week. My one issue with him just watching him on tape would be he's not exactly uh, that mauler type of mentality. He doesn't drive people incredibly far back, but his ability to anchor and I, what I feel like he could do as in pass protection is is very good. Not that he's a terrible run blocker. I'm not saying that whatsoever, but that's probably what's preventing him from being a higher pick is there might be just be a little bit of questions with drive at the point of attack, but he does not get beat in pass protection and he's just a really tough player. And I just loved what I saw from him down in Mobile with his feet, hand quickness and ability to anchor uh, in these one on ones against guys who are weigh a lot more than him, guys who weigh 20 pounds more than him. You know, that's not easy to do. And he was able to do that at a consistent level. Yeah. And you look at that LSU line and offense this year, it was dominant. (laughs) There was no pressure on Burrow almost any of the time. And they ran the ball when they needed to. And they don't really have any kind of elite talent at the tackle positions. They have great interior line. And Kush is the guy who led it. I think he'd be an excellent target for the Giants in round two. Upgrading center would make a massive difference on this roster, regardless of what they do at the tackle positions. But speaking of the center positions, a big surprise for me this week was Keith Ishmael out of San Diego state. And we talked about before how, you know, small school prospects like at San Diego state center can really shine in an event like this. Is he someone who stood out to you and 
impressed you and maybe somebody who, you know, the Giants might consider with that third round pick or even potentially because centers do tend to fall a day three pick, a nice fourth round pick. Ishmael is a guy that nobody was talking about. I don't know why, like all these people in the media, like I haven't heard anybody talk about him, but from what I saw, he played very, very well. He's incredibly patient, which is something that's hard to do because a lot of guys will overextend themselves, throw the punch too early, overextend themselves, get themselves off balance, and then just get swum around or ripped through or something along those lines. Ishmael was not doing that in these 1v1s or in team drills or anything like that. He was very, very patient, waited, struck, struck hard, had his elbows tight, inside hand placement, and his fundamentals were really, really sound. I mean, six foot three, 300 pounds, not the biggest center in the world, but pretty good size. And he, I thought he had really fluid hips, especially in the 2v2 stunt drills where they usually do end tackle and tackle end stunts, and it's up to that center to ride the one tech or the zero tech and then wait for that looping three tech. And he did that really well while unhinging his hips and showing really fluid hips. And I remember a couple of years ago when I was down at the Senior Bowl, I saw Will Hernandez do this on several different occasions. And I know Dave Gettleman puts a high precedent on those kind of athletic traits. Can he open his hips really quickly? Can he swivel his hips and do things like that? And Ishmael showed that, and nobody's talking about him. And I thought he quietly had a really Really, really good day down there in Mobile. I have a really, really good week, I should say. Yeah, I mean, listen, you just got me pumped about Ishmael for a lot of reasons here. Or Ismael, I think it's Ismail. I don't even know how to, I, I don't think there's a, there's no H in his name, and I'm thinking I'm pronouncing it wrong because I'm pretending there is, but that's not important. The point is, like you said, this is a guy who projects as a player who Dave Gettleman would be interested in for that reason. And what really intrigued me the most was what I was reading about, that he was able to hold up at the point of attack, which was important. But more importantly was was what you were saying. It was that athletic athleticism and agility and ability to kind of hit those reach blocks. That's something the Giants haven't had at the center position really since the early days of Weston Richburg, um, where he was kind of that center for them for a little while before the injuries started to pile up. And that ability to reach the second level is just so important for a team that is based on, that has a running back like Saquon Barkley on the offensive side of the ball. So he's someone who really intrigues me if they go a different route than center in round two and they pass on a guy like Kush and, you know, upgrade different positions. Because I think Ismail, like you said, I mean, it's kind of like the the book is out, not not the book is out. It's kind of like, the gig is up. Like now people are onto him and he's definitely on the radar of GMs. He's probably not going to be that day three pick that people thought will probably now go somewhere around, you know, round three, maybe even round two, honestly, I'll be honest, because we've seen this happen with, with prospects like him from smaller schools. I mean, Titus Howard was a first round pick last year by the Texans. Uh, um, that was a bit of a reach people thought, but you know, he was so good during the pre-draft process and, and the way these teams are probably looking at it is like, look, he proved he can play with these seniors, but that's all we really needed to know because everything else we've seen from him has been awesome. So I think he's someone to definitely keep an eye on. That's Ismail. But as we move forward, let's talk a little bit offensive tackles, Nick, guys that stood out to you. Um, But actually, before we dive into that, I wanted to get a guy. I wanted to get your opinion on a guy who I know you said was in your notes a few times. um, Somebody who wasn't on my radar, and that's Ben Bredinson. So he's kind of an interesting prospect. I believe he has a day three projection for now. Um, He plays the interior. He's lengthy, though. He's 6'5", 320. He was a former four-star recruit, top recruit out of Wisconsin uh, on the offensive line that year. He started all four years at Michigan. I, my question for you is, is he someone you think could kind of play the center role, center position for the Giants? And were you that impressed with him down there? I know he started like 49 games or something ridiculous at Michigan. And I know like 46 of them were at guard. So I don't right. 
I'm not 100% sure if he can make that transition. I hoped I wrote about it for Big Blue View because he was very impressive. He won a lot of 1v1s and showed just a lot of uh, power at the point of attack, ability to kind of handle counters, do things like that. And he just showed athletic traits that I felt like were intriguing at the same time. I mean, he's... I look at uh, I, l- I was looking at Bredesen and then I watched some of the film of the game and he seemed like he was doing solid in the game too. So he was doing well in team periods. He was doing well in the game. He was doing well in one v one. So it jumped out at me. And I know our interior offensive line at the guard position is kind of set, but I'm not 100% sure if he could handle that switch to center. I just don't really know. I mean, it's it's easier said than done to be honest. But he's definitely somebody that caught my eye and I think a team will probably invest in him in early to mid day two because he definitely showed up down there and he was obviously starting in the big 10 for a really long time. So he's definitely somebody that is on a lot of people's radars. You think he'll raise that, you know, think he'll rise that far into day two. I think he could. Yeah. Like mid day two, maybe like the beginning of the third round or end of the second round, something along those lines, just from things that I've heard. But again, there's a lot like there's like, I always say this, this time of year, there's like 90 first round picks. Everybody's a first round pick. So it is kind of one of those glory types. But if people are looking for interior offensive line with some of the other interior offensive linemen that have went back to school, especially because the guard position isn't necessarily overly strong this year, it's more of the center position. I can see somebody going and and drafting somebody like Bredesen in that area. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the Giants don't need a guard right now, but it's not a terrible idea to take one. I think probably closer to day three to kind of groom to eventually replace Zeitler or if Hernandez keeps regressing Hernandez, because I think Zeitler actually has a bunch of years left. As crazy as that sounds, given I believe he's 31 now, but I don't think it matters. He's 31 or 32. He's a guy who I think is going to play really well until 35, 36, 37. I mean, Andrew Whitworth does in and I don't see why Zeitler can't either. Uh, But just somebody to keep an eye on if he's rising. Let's talk tackles, though, Nick. The Giants obviously need an offensive tackle. They probably need two offensive tackles uh, soon. Obviously, we both thought Rembers played a little better than most people agree with, or most people believe or remember, I guess. But he's obviously not the long-term answer. So let's start with Josh Jones, who, in my opinion, was the most interesting offensive tackle prospect to enter this week. A lot of people in the draft community love Josh Jones. Um, I think please. Pro Football Focus actually has him as their 18th best player overall on their draft board. But obviously during Senior Bowl week, ESPN kind of dropped a graphic with my boy Todd McShay, who I've obviously had a run in with a small run in on Twitter with, with in the past, who has Josh jo- uh, who has Jones actually somehow as his 19th best offensive tackle and his 201st best overall player. I find that pretty laughable, and I and I, and it was enjoyable for me to see. Clearly shows that he obviously didn't get to Houston's tape much. And obviously, again, it's a small school. Jones plays at Houston. But I think, Nick, it's pretty fair to say Josh Jones is not going to be uh, the 201st player selected in this draft. Most people believe he'll actually push for day one consideration. But I think there's a chance, given the tackle depth in this class, Nick, that he falls right perfectly into the Giants' laps with their round two pick. Um so what did you make of Houston's offensive tackle, Josh Jones? Was he as impressive as he seemed to be heading into this week? Yeah, Josh Jones, I mean, he just has the size, six foot five, 311 pounds, and his arms are just, I want to say, I'm going to look at the notes real quick. Yeah, they're a shade below 34 inches, so he has those measurables. And I felt like he was smooth with his, with his footwork and his kick slide and things along those lines. Sometimes he would overcommit himself against some of the faster speed rushers and he would get himself kind of overcommit and leave himself susceptible to inside moves. I thought he had an up and down week, which is weird because I, I was looking around Twitter and stuff, just scrolling through Twitter like the dick that I am. And I see, I see people say, praising him. And then I see other people 
kind of shitting on him. So I like I was just thinking to myself, it's like I feel like the draft community was so up and down on his performance. But I just thought his week was it, it, it didn't wow me. I saw like fundamental flaws with just kind of the overextension and things like that. But I also saw him handle some reps incredibly well in the one V one showing power at the point of attack and things along those lines and striking with really, really heavy hands. But I just thought it was, a. Uh, it wasn't as consistent as I would have liked, but Josh Jones is definitely really intriguing. I think if you pair him with a good offensive line coach or something along those lines, who can kind of bring the most out of his physical gifts, then he could be really, really effective at the next level because he is, he does have quick feet. He's nimble and things along those lines. He just kind of needs a really, really good coach. Yeah. It's interesting because that could come into play here, Nick. I mean, Jones is an interesting prospect. It was only a three star coming out, but he was also a really good basketball player who started there. And I always think that's good to have that kind of athleticism uh, when you convert to offensive line. But what you said is true. It's possible that this jump will, will kind of expose more of those technical flaws that weren't on display at Houston. I mean, from just the standpoint of how he played in at, at in Houston at the collegiate level, at least according to Pro Football Focus, he was their highest graded offensive tackle ever from a non-Power 5 school in a single season. Um, he only allowed 18 pressures on almost 1,300 pass blocking snaps. So he was dominant as a run blocker, dominant as a pass blocker at Houston. But does that change when he goes to the NFL? Are some of those flaws that you know won't be exposed against the competition he played at against Houston, or I'm sorry, played at played against at Houston? Will they show up in the NFL? And that's always possible for these offensive linemen. So it's intriguing to hear you throw a little cold water on the Josh Jones hype, because um, obviously he's somebody who intrigued me a lot for the Giants, and he still will. I know you're not ruling him out or anything like that. No, not at all. Not at all. I'm not ruling him out. And I don't good necessarily... line coach can kind of put, push that forward. Yes. Yeah. Like I, that's what I feel. I just think uh, they can bring out the most in him, and which is kind of you could say that about any prospect. But yeah, Josh Jones. I mean, I still find him very, very intriguing. And there's other offensive tackles that we'll dive into. The kid from St. John's, uh, Matt Barch. He was a D3 player. That guy really made himself so much money down here. We've seen a lot of small school kids go down to Mobile and make themselves a lot of money, like Ali Marpet uh, coming from Hobart a couple years ago. And uh, Ben Barch, he's somebody that I really just wanted to bring up because he was just very, very physical. <laughs> Finished every play with like an extra push to the defensive lineman and just I feel like he can probably be a guard even though he played tackle in college guard at the next level not really work in as much space but he was just really really patient and showed a lot of balance and a lot of strength at the point of attack strong hands very very physical high competitive toughness kind of guy so Ben Barch somebody else I definitely wanted to bring the Giants attention Giants fans attention to yeah that's interesting Barch is a guy like you said he could follow in that path of Marpet or these these guys who are from I won't even want to say small schools, like no school, and kind of exactly, yeah. rise up the ranks. But how about a guy who's from a smaller school, not quite as small, that really caught my attention this week? I like his length, six foot seven, might be a little undersized. I think he's tipping the scales maybe at 300 if he's lucky. Uh, but just kind of a cool football background coming from Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica. And he didn't even play football until high school. And I kind of always like those guys who kind of make that big jump like and, had, and hadn't played. And that's Matt Pert from... UConn who really and this was his only college offer UConn and they saw it they saw something in him they saw the athleticism they like and they put him there and he's been a starter ever since he was a freshman in 2016 uh, offensive tackle prospect and then he really stood out this week in the senior bowl so what did you take away from watching Pert yeah so Matt Pert is six foot six 310 pounds 35 plus inch arms with a whopping impressive 86 and one eighth wingspan 
which wow. is is gigantic. And he paired that with a really solid week as well. Because again, just like I was saying with Jones, his footwork is smooth, his kick slide is nice. And yeah, there were times where he would overextend himself. But I felt like Josh Jones really uh, just, I mean, uh, Matt Pert really was praised coming into this event by Jim Nagy. Jim Nagy said that he could be a DeBrickashaw Ferguson, but he's not. he doesn't have the draft hype of DeBrickashaw, and that's high praise. But Pert came down here, handled himself incredibly well on the field in the interviews from everything that I heard. And I was sitting in on a couple of the interviews during the media day, just listening to people talk with him, seemed like a really articulate young man. But on the field, very smooth strong punching things along those lines handled counters the one thing i did see where is a couple spin move counters by uh, carter coughlin of minnesota who loves that spin move and a couple of the other edge rushers kind of got per uche kind of got per uh holding uh a lot to be honest i saw that on maybe two or three reps but he was able to handle the guy mirror all throughout that rep that made the pass rusher kind of go to that third move that he tried because Pert was able to kind of stalemate him with the bull rush and the club or whatever the pass rusher was trying to do, if that makes sense. I felt like Matt Pert did really well. And just like I said with Josh Jones, maybe a little bit raw coming from a smaller school. But if you pair that with a good offensive line coach, he has all the tools and he has the athleticism to be a solid player. That's kind of what you're looking for. Can he, can he, if coached up, does he have the tools to do it? He has the length, has the size, has the power, has the footwork, has the quick hands. Now just kind of refine all that. And I think Perk can definitely be somebody picked in those middle rounds that could really, if paired with the right offensive line coach, just be a diamond in the rough. Yeah, I really, I mean, listen, Nick, I really like what I saw from him from a footwork standpoint, what I've observed. I think he actually does need to put on a little bit more weight to his frame from what, just from looking at him um, in the senior bowl. I know you, you probably say, you probably go, closer I don't know where if you stand sure for sure on that but I mean the fact of the matter is as far as his his play on the field goes he, he's improved in every single season since coming in and starting as a freshman um including as a run blocker so obviously he's he's picked up on some of the things he's needed to learn to get better at that position um and as far as play strength goes he probably can add some weight to his frame he's, he's almost six foot seven you said six foot six. I'm sure he's tip, almost tipping the scales at six foot six to six foot seven. So if he can add some more strength to his frame and not lose what he what he has already shown as a pass blocker um, and with his footwork, I think he could be a really, really intriguing prospect who could end up being a, a long term starter that you get in round three. Because he's probably even, you know, even after this kind of week with the depth in this tackle class and the fact that he played at UConn and some concerns, like I said, about his frame. He's probably not going to be anything more than a third round pick here, I don't think, um, just based on the depth of this class and every other position that needs to be addressed for every other team. So I think he's someone who could be there when the Giants pick with that comp, uh, compensatory pick they're going to get for Landon Collins. Um, so he's someone who would really intrigue me there if Gettleman wanted to get a guy because he's done it before with guys like Daryl Williams in the past, you know, round three, round four guys who end up being long term starters for him. And it wouldn't shock me if this is the class he does. And he wanted to do it last year. And when he took O'Shane Ziminens, but like he said, there was a night, there was a run on tackles just before the pick, and he, he felt like it had been exhausted. I don't think that will be the case this year for the offensive tackle position when the Giants pick at the end of round three. And again, they're picking at the end of round three for essentially a second straight year. Um, for those who don't know, the com compensatory pick they're getting for Landon Collins will be at the end of round three, um, after all the other compensatory picks, I believe, or maybe before that, but after all the other picks. So it's kind of around the same area where they took O'Shane Eximinens last year. So just something to keep an eye on there. Um, before we move past the all-line, there's one other guy I wanted to get your your thoughts on. That's Damien Lewis, the guard at LSU. He's only six foot two, but I just thought he was an absolute animal on the interior. 
I think he's someone who would be intriguing to convert to center. Do you have any thoughts on what you saw from Lewis? Yeah, Lewis is a very wide body, and he – I thought on day one he was struggling. But you had both the LSU guys, and when you compared him to what Cushenberry was doing, Cushenberry just looked like a far superior player. And day one I felt like he struggled and just got off balance a lot and just wasn't really uh, – striking with good timing or anything like that was kind of missing and then just getting exposed. But I felt like he had a much better day two practice and I left for day three's practice. I left on Thursday and that was inside and I didn't really get to watch him for that day. But day two, I felt like he did play better in those one-on-ones and in team because he's very, very strong at the point of the tag, very, very stout and a very, very wide body dude. I don't know if he could be switched to center. I mean, it's not too far-fetched to think that, but that would be something that, you know, coaches and things along those lines can kind of figure it out. But it does intrigue me for sure because he played on that really good LSU offensive line. And from everything I've heard, I have a couple of buddies who work in the recruiting department of LSU. Cushenberry is praised for his leadership and Damian Lewis is a good dude too. Yeah. I mean, listen, either of those guys seems interesting to me. Let's flip it to the other side of the ball. Start with the edge guys, Nick. Let's talk about Josh Uche, and I hope I'm saying that right, out of Michigan. He's someone who kind of looked more, even more explosive and twitchy off the edge than people thought um, coming into the senior week. He really wasn't a big, huge part of that Michigan defense, so a lot of people kind of were either unaware of him or didn't really see him as a potential you know, breakout star-type pick in this draft, but he really shined this week. What did you make, what did you make from watching Uche? Now, Uche really did well for himself. Six foot one, 241 pounds, a shade over 33 inch arms. So he's not the most measurable kind of guy, but he had over seven sacks his last two seasons at Michigan. So that's something that is impressive. But what's more impressive is that explosive first step that he possesses to really challenge the offensive linemen's footworks and their sets. And that's one reason why I feel like a lot of the offensive linemen on the North team's practices were kind of oversetting was because of the speed of Uche and Zuniga and a lot of those pass rushers. I mean, he has an ability to string moves together and he really was able to do that up the arc and would get the offensive tackle moving up the arc with him. And then he would hit them with an inside spin move or some kind of inside move because he has so much suddenness and explosiveness and quickness in his steps with his feet. So like I was just really impressed with Uche. A lot of people came away incredibly pressed or impressed with him. And Uche also tested really well in with his movement skills in space because the coaching staff of the Lions were, was using him in a way as a linebacker to show case his skill set to see if he can play in space and he did really really well covering people way outside when it comes to they would split the running back way out by the sideline he would go out there handle a slant route really well get his hand in there force a pbu do things like that my concern with uche at the next level is could he be a tweener and i don't like using that term with the multiple kind of defenses that the NFL employees, but I just, I'm not a hundred percent sold on his ability to hold up at the point of attack. So is he going to be a situational pass rusher? Can he make that move and that switch to linebacker? That's something that I feel like is a concern for Uche, but like those pass rushing traits of just being able to bend through contact, have the flexibility, have an explosive first, second, third step up the arc and string a couple moves together. Those things are all there. And that's, that can go a long way when it comes to drafting these guys in this, you know, second, third round around that time, if he's available around there. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, I think there are a lot of those concerns, and that's what and that's what I think will ultimately put him on the board potentially where the Giants pick in round three in a similar spot to where they got in Ziminens. But he's someone who excites me a lot more personally than Ziminens did. Ziminens obviously had a lot of production 
great counter moves. And he was pretty solid contributor for the Giants in, in year one. But Uche is kind of the opposite. He's really freakishly athletic. Um, he's also someone who has an interesting backstory. He grew up as a Nigerian. He's a Nigerian immigrant. So somebody who came over kind of still learning the game in some sense and really wasn't in you know, any kind of crazy role with Michigan. He only started nine games and rotated in for the other ones last year, but just freakish athleticism, in my opinion. And somebody who, like you said, some people believe he could move off ball and be be somebody who's kind of like, not a tween, yeah, a tweener, but I don't think tweener is a bad thing, Nick. I, I hear people saying this is a bad thing. To me, that just means you're versatile and you give the defensive coordinator, especially if you have a defensive coordinator like the Giants currently have in Graham, versatility and the ability to change up your scheme and do different things on different downs. And if he could also play off ball and for the Giants, I mean, he could be really just an awesome player for them in, in situational spots, especially, you know, if he can hold up kind of in coverage that way. So he's someone who's really intrigued me this week and somebody who I think will be on their radar potentially with that round three pick. How about the the brothers, the pair from, or I'm not the brothers, sorry, the, <laughs> the teammates, I should say. I don't know why I thought they were brothers for a second. Um, just misread my notes. The teammates from Florida, uh, Jabari Zuniga and Jonathan Greener. Greener was the guy who stood out to me a little bit more this week. What did you see from those two? Yeah, Zuniga is six foot three, two hundred fifty-three pounds, and Grenard is six foot three, two sixty-two. So he's a bit bigger, and I feel like that shows up on film. I think he's a little bit more physical and much better at the point of attack. I think they both pack really powerful punches. I think Zuniga is a quicker player, not just because he's lighter. It's just very evident when you see him go up the arc. Very quick, first three steps. He can bend through contact, swivel his hips, and corner at the top of the arc. While, again, bending through contact, what I mean by that basically is if I'm a pass rusher and I go up and I tack the half man like I'm supposed to do, I tack that outside shoulder of the tackle, the tackle punches me, I can bend through that contact, use my flexibility and bend around and usually either rip through or use a swim move, something along those lines, up the arc, he was able to string moves together. He was able to do all this thing in a very quick and sudden fashion, and that's what really impressed me about Zuniga. He was one of those other linemen or edge players, just like Uche, who was challenging those tackles on those one-on-one -on -one drills. And I thought Grenard, he had more than 15 and a half tackles for a loss in his last two seasons. He was a transfer from Louisville, so he just played 2019 in Gainesville, and I thought he... Just I haven't watched a lot of tape on him from his time in Gainesville, but just at the senior bowl, you could tell he has really heavy hands and he's very physical at the point of attack. I feel like he can hold up against the run a little bit better than Zuniga just from what I saw in those drills, but they both really impressed me. Yeah, I mean, those are guys that, again, could be in the mix for the Giants on that day too range. How about Bradley and I? He's a guy who, you know, was blasted for having short arms, wasn't going to translate to the next level. But every time he's really given the chance to, he performs. In the Senior Bowl, he had three sacks in the actual game. Did he look as hard to hard to defend or hard to block in one on one drills as he did in the Senior Bowl game? Honestly, and I didn't jump out at me as yeah. much as I would have hoped that he did going into the week. And he won, I think, a couple reps here and there, but then he was dominated on others. He was thrown to the ground on a couple. So okay. like there were, it, it wasn't as impressive. And then he went to the game and he absolutely balled out. And a lot of the times I didn't even really notice a was out there. It was one of those kind of things too. I was like, oh wait, that, there, there's a right there. He's running the rep, and it was just nothing. It was either a stalemate or something like that, or he lose. Sometimes he would win, but he never won in really dominating fashion. But he's a player that's really intriguing and I'm interested to get into that Utah tape because I've heard a lot of good things about how he has a multiple pass rushing repertoire where he has a lot of different moves and he can win in a lot of different ways and I didn't necessarily see that in the one-on-ones but you go to the game and what does he do he dominates so that's something that definitely is going to 
catch scouts' eyes, but I kind of wanted to see a little bit more from Manai. But I did see just some things floating around Twitter on day three. Again, I wasn't at that practice. He had a couple one-on-ones that he was dominant in, so maybe he just started a little bit slow, and then he was able to kind of put it all together in day three. But I didn't see that because I wasn't at that practice. Okay, fair enough, Nick. Any other edge guys you want to talk about before we move to a different side of the ball? Uh, yeah, well, Kenny Willickis from Michigan State, he has a really, yeah. really unique stance where his head is basically in the dirt. His inside arm is like up in like a 90 degree angle and his butt is in the air. It was really, really weird to see. But it really, I guess, reduces the surface area of his chest because guys were really struggling to block him and get a hold of him in the 1v1s. He had a rep against uh, Bryson Hopkins, the tight end from Purdue in team period where he was the backside defender and he drove Bryson Hopkins all the way back into the running back. It was really, really, really impressive. So he's somebody I didn't know a lot about coming into this week. And I just felt like he was winning 1v1s. He was really loud and vocal, cheering on teammates, seemed like a rah-rah kind of guy, somebody that I feel like caught a lot of people's eyes. Yeah, he's a guy who came to Michigan State as a total, as a walk-on and said, I'm going to earn this scholarship. I know I have the work ethic to get in there and get a scholarship. And that's exactly what he did. And he was on the field for a ton of snaps, looking at it now for Michigan State last year. Awesome run defender for them, at least for the grades. Um, so somebody who might be kind of that guy who, you know, you take – ends up being a core special teamer and somebody who can help you in certain spots and you get him late round four, five, six range. So somebody to keep an eye on for sure for the Giants, see if they're interested in him. But now it's time, Nick, because I really wanted to talk about this guy and get your thoughts on him. To get my favorite Giants target of any player this week over Cush, over Jones, over the linemen, and that is linebacker Akeem Davis-Gaither out of Appalachian State. This dude is exactly what I love, Nick. Former safety, exactly where the NFL is moving at linebacker, at off-ball linebacker. He's a playmaker that I think the Giants can need. I saw the Senior Bowl was buzzing about him. What did you see from from, uh, Davis Gaither, and is the hype for real? I thought the hype was for real from what I saw about Davis Gaither. Um, I didn't get to see as much linebacker drills in person, but what I saw on the film room and just watching him move in space and the couple drills that I was able to see live, it's impressive. He has really, really impressive movement skills, really, really fluid ability to just open up, make a decision, and then close downhill. So everything that I saw from him in that regard, I really like just his athleticism and his ability to move. I, I wish I kind of saw more one-on-ones, him against running backs, pass rushing drills, even though usually the linebackers always win that. But from what I heard, he did really well there too. I feel like he won't struggle in man coverage. He won't struggle with his speed, his athleticism. And I just kind of want to get into his tapes, hard to find Appalachian State tape, but I want to get into his tape to see how physical he is coming downhill. But it seems like his ability to scrape, his ability to move, his ability to scrape over top of blocks and things along those lines. I saw in team period when I was watching that, that seemed like it was a pretty effective thing that he had in his his toolbox. So I was really look, I'm just looking forward to watching more film on him. But yeah, he definitely just popped out just in movement drills and bag drills and things along those lines because you could tell. You want him to be a little bit bigger. He's only 219 pounds, six foot one, but you could just tell that he's very, very fluid and he has that closing burst that you kind of look for. So he's somebody that I think will will test pretty well at the combine. And what an interesting story, by the way, for him. I mean, he's a guy who came in as a five foot ten, 170 pound safety, didn't the two star recruit, didn't have many offers, went to App State because he knew he could build build himself into something there. Now he's 220, six foot two, grew into his body. Like you said, freakish athlete who, who, from what I've seen, is an awesome blitzer and awesome in coverage. Exactly what the Giants need, pass coverage and blitz ability. That's exactly what they want at that off-ball linebacker position. And also, you know, he's a guy who 
he not he, just looking at kind of his trans transaction or not transition transgression up the ranks like similar reminds me similar to Darius Leonard a couple years ago who the Colts took in the second round everyone laughed them off even though he was a massive riser during this period of time in the pre-draft process people still thought maybe he should be a third fourth rounder Colts said screw that they took him in the second and he ended up proving defensive player rookie of the year ended up proving worthy of a top 10 overall pick let alone second rounder I'm not saying Davis Gaither is the same thing as Darius Leonard that would be crazy to say but I will say that in 2019, he had 104 tackles, 14 and a half tackles for loss, nine pass deflections, five sacks and interception. I mean, he's just all over the place. He's exactly what I think the Giants need. He's somebody who I'm certainly interested in uh, drafting with that second round pick um, if he's still on the board. And I think he will be uh, just based on some of the factors. OK, Nick, how about Cam Brown? He's another linebacker who stood out to you, right? Yeah, he's a really rangy defender. Now, again, I didn't see as much linebacker as I would like. But the thing that was interesting about Cam Brown, just from the weigh-ins that really kind of caught my eye is the Giants nation is all sold on Isaiah Simmons. Now this player is nowhere near Isaiah Simmons. And I'm not saying that he is, but from a measurable perspective, he has similar type of build where he has that kind of quasi safety linebacker. He's six foot five. He's a little bit bigger for safety. He's 232 pounds. So, and he has a, the wingspan of 79 inches. So it's just under 80 and that's pretty damn big, almost 34 inch arms, 33 and seven eighths. So from a measurable perspective, I think that he's kind of interesting, but I wish I saw more of just him in the team. And I just wasn't able to, because there's so many things going around and, you know, sometimes practice you're on one end of the end zone. And then on the other end of the end zone is where the linebacker drills are. And you can't really get over there before the period is over. And that kind of happened with me with the linebacker. So I wasn't able to watch as much as I really wanted to. But from a measurable perspective, I thought Cam Brown just incredibly rangy. Some of the drills that I saw seemed like he moved well in space, but he's just one of those people who are just really, really long and has pretty good size. Could be maybe a will or something along those lines in the NFL at the 4-3 linebacker position, but he could probably be very versatile just from the way he moved and his size. But I just thought I wanted to bring him up because he has those intriguing measurables like Isaiah Simmons has. So if the Giants don't go in that direction, they may get this guy really, really late because he'll be available because he's nowhere near the player that Simmons is. Yeah, I mean, Brown, six foot five, he runs and moves like he's six foot two. He's a freakish athlete, played at Penn State, wasn't awesome there for them, even though he was a tackling machine in high school. I think some people believe with Brown that he kind of was a bad fit for their system over there, and he needs to be in kind of a system where he can be more free to just kind of do a lot of different things and, and play more aggressive and faster. And I think that people look at his athletic tricks and the way he moves and say, wow, he could be a next level linebacker for the new NFL. Um, and I think that's certainly in play. He'd be an intriguing guy. If the Giants landed him in like round four or five, like they kind of targeted Darius Slayton in that range, I think it'd be kind of a similar type of pick, like a guy who can be unlocked at the NFL level who wasn't maximized by his college system. So definitely someone to keep an eye on. How about the cornerbacks? Troy Pride uh, out of Notre Dame is the guy who really got the most hype this week and then a germ i believe there was another cornerback who stood out to you in your notes nick do you want to touch on the cornerbacks from this class and what really stood out to you yeah troy pride 5'11 193 he i think he could be a nickelback in the nfl like a really effective one and the giants might be in line for that i know grant haley is really really good coming up and stopping the run but he's just not you can't cover anybody and then valentine that experiment just didn't seem to work out in his rookie season hopefully uh the pastures are greener later but pride day one he broke 
inside on two routes when he was basically out on the boundary playing boundary corner. He broke inside at the same exact time as the receivers and knocked two balls away. So he was kind of just really, really aggressive. And again, he's not that big, but he's still physical with his hands, getting his hands and punching the ball, things along those lines at the catch point, which is things that, uh, I just look for in these smaller defenders because playing the slot is absolutely brutal. And I know everyone wasn't so high on pride or high on pride. I felt like he had a really good week though. And I feel like he deserves to be just applauded for it. Why not? Right. But yeah, definitely somebody that stood out to me. Uh, Another player, the one I think you're referencing, he's more of a safety and that's Jeremy chin from Southern Illinois. And this guy is just really, really impressive looking six foot three, 219 pounds. He had at least three interceptions, five pass deflections. And I know he's coming from Southern Illinois, very, very small school, but he's just physically imposing player that I felt like had a really good week. He was really effective coming downhill, delivering huge hits, things along those lines. And I think that I know the giants have, peppers at the safety position and obviously i'm going to need to watch more film on chin i believe he comes from a too high system in college so i don't know if he has that necessary range but his size and ability to just hit physically it's very very impressive and chin and i we actually had a really good exchange at media day i went up to him you know the journalist that i am and asked him a really hard-hitting question i asked him if he was a mythical creature what mythical creature would he be Mm. and he responded with well i want to be invisible i want to be really really strong really really fast really really quick And I was like, oh, so you're basically going to be Superman. And he was like, yeah. And then he was able to kind of flip the conversation and make it into football. So I was like, so you're going to be really versatile. You're going to have all this versatility. So that means you could play nickelback, DB, safety, linebacker. And we chuckled about it. And he seemed like a good kid with, you know, with a sense of humor and a high character kind of guy. So I really liked that from him. But on the field, he also showed up. And I think he made money for himself. Another player is Kyle Duggar from Lenore Ryan. Small, oh, yeah. six I foot. I your thoughts on Duggar. Yeah, for six sure. foot. 217. Yeah, I think he had an interception. It was day two where he undercut a route and he was able to just pick the ball off. And he was kind of all over the place doing really well in man coverage against Florida Atlantic's Harrison Bryant, Vanderbilt's Jared Pinckney, two tight ends. Definitely not afraid of contact. So he has really, really good size. And I just felt like he had another really good week as well. Somebody that probably moved up draft boards and just kind of made scouts and general managers pay more attention to Lenore Ryan film. You know what I'm saying? So Duggar is definitely somebody who uh, did well for themselves. I just, there wasn't the secondary kind of gets abused in a lot of these one-on-ones, especially when they go up against this wide receiver class. So there wasn't too many guys that really stuck out, but those three, I felt like had really good weeks down there. Yeah, no doubt. And like Nick, listen, as far as Duggar goes, he's a guy who stood out to me, obviously from Lenore Ryan that caught my attention, but just because the giants really need, Somebody to play that deep half safety role. And for me, if they don't do it in free agency, I think it will actually be a massive mistake. And we'll talk about this later, Nick. But there are – I've never seen as many potential awesome deep half safety uh, free agents as there might be as long as they don't get re-signed, which still might happen, by the way, guys. Some of these guys that I've been tweeting about are that you see, you know, Simmons and Harris and McCourty even, who I would be totally down for signing. I don't care about his age. Um, might get re-signed by their respective teams. Uh, but if not, there's a lot of potential deep half safeties for the Giants to attack in free agency. But if not, they need one in the draft. I mean, they need to improve this position. They can't just trot Bethea back there again, um, you know, expect to win games because teams like Detroit, like the Giant, like Giants saw in the game they lost to the Lions this year, are just going to aggressively attack attack that safety in the deep half. So just something to keep an eye on. Anyone else from the, any other deep half safeties catch your attention, Nick, in this, or, or not, not really from what you saw? 
Nah, there wasn't really any. I was trying to look to see if there was guys with like that exceptional range and no one really jumped out at me uh, in that capacity. And maybe I'm going to watch more of the film because I have my hands on some of the senior bowl film and I wanted to watch some more of that. I worked yesterday, so I didn't really have the time to do that. But uh, I didn't really see much of uh, just one high safety guys who were really, really intriguing. Ashton Davis, the safety from Cal. He didn't participate in the – he was down there. He waited and everything, but he didn't participate. He got flagged for medicals, as did Brandon Ayuk, the wide receiver from Arizona State, who's somebody else who could realistically probably be like a high day two pick. Some people are even talking about him in the first round. But again, there's like 90 first rounders right now, so you got to right. keep that in perspective. Yeah. But yeah, those those two players are really, really intriguing. Both didn't practice though. Any other small school prospects stand out to you that we didn't touch on yet? So we talked about Barch. We talked about Chin. Uh, Liberty's Gandy Golden. He's somebody who caught a touchdown pass in the game. And he – I was concerned with his ability to separate. The kid catches everything. is really, really good hands, and he showed that at Liberty. But I thought he went down there and showed some separation ability and some nuance to his route running and things along those lines. So he opened my eyes. I say things along those lines a lot. But, yeah, he definitely opened up my eyes. Uh, as well. He's a kid from Liberty. Uh, his last name was Gandy Golden. Antonio Gandy Golden. Someone who they could target on day three as well. They might still go that receiver route. And if they do, we kind of hope it's day three just based on what they have to work with. Uh, before we sign off, Nick, any other players or any other moments from the senior bowl you wanted to touch on that stood out to you or anything that needs to be covered that we haven't yet? No, I believe we touched on a lot of good content, content that or players at least that the Giants are definitely going to be yeah. interested in bringing in. There are other players that did well that like Jason Strobridge had a really, really good two days of practice. I didn't get to see the third day. Really, really good two days of practice where he was winning basically every rep. He is the UNC defensive tackle, but I just don't know if the Giants are going to go in that direction. I mean, that guy was really, really quick. He showed incredible heavy hands, lateral quickness, but two six four two sixty seven. I'm not sure if the Giants would go in that direction, but he's somebody that I – Felt like I had to bring up because you Dear just really, really God, like and we just hope the Giants don't go in that direction. <laughs> another interior defensive lineman, it, it, it might the, the internet might explode if the Giants use another asset on an interior defensive lineman here. But I digress. On that note, guys, thanks again for tuning in to the Big Blue Banter podcast. We've got some more big things coming this offseason. We're kind of still formulating our plan for how we want to attack this. There's a lot to talk about, honestly, with this team. Team needs free agency. Daniel Jones' rookie season, a lot of that's coming. we got some interviews. We're kind of starting to plan as well, and we got to get dates hammered down for that. But thanks again for tuning in during the offseason. We appreciate the consistent and loyal following that has always been with this podcast. If you or your friends want to help improve the show and help build the show, do us a favor and just make sure you download every podcast. And if you haven't already rated and subscribed on iTunes, that's a huge help for us as well. And on that note, have a great rest of your week, and go Giants. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. 
They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.